You are listening to Claret and Blue, an Aston Villa podcast brought to you by Birmingham Live. Today is Sunday, 9th of August, 2020. Ten years ago today, exactly, the following statement came out from Aston Villa. I'll read the first line. Aston Villa can confirm that Martin O'Neill has resigned as manager of the football club with immediate effect. When you heard that news for the first time ten years ago today, what did you think? I thought, I'm in for a busy night tonight. I'm going to have to do a back page lead, six page spread for the paper. I love that it's work related, your first uh, thought. It wasn't a surprise that he left. It was a surprise the timing of it. It had been kind of festering away for for months since the kind of back end of the previous season. I turned up at Villa Park, all the big sky vans and the satellite dishes and yep. all this kind of thing. I think it's the last time I've ever been interviewed by BBC Radio Belfast, actually. <laughs> Is it the first time as well? It was. They don't seem, they don't seem to call anymore. I must have done <laughs> such a bad job. I probably couldn't pick through my accent. Um, but yeah, it was, oh my God, he's actually gone. Somebody we, we trusted to kind of get Villa to, to that top four, he's gone. So that was the one thing, that was the one kind of kick in the stomach to deal with. And the other one was exactly that. We, You know, the season kicks off in five days. Five days. <laughs> what are we going to do? You start your week with the news that O'Neill's leaving and you're looking ahead to Saturday thinking, we've got West Ham on Saturday. We're starting a season of fresh, fresh optimism. We've just finished six, three years in a row. This is the year we push on to top four and the, the manager walks away. It's funny, you know, we're obviously, we're going to debate O'Neill and his legacy and him leaving and what it did for Villa. But that Saturday still had fresh optimism because the dressing room, I say the dressing room, when I say the dressing room was split, I don't mean it was divided like there were factions and yeah. they were all at war, but the dressing room was split in terms of those who liked him and felt part of his in-crowd and those who just thought, well, we're never going to get a chance. It was a shock. Um, I'd certainly say it was a, sh- it was a shock. Um, obviously, being just before, I don't know if I would have played or not. It obviously worked out worked out well for me for that first game of the season because uh, Kev McDonald took over and put me straight in. But when when he left, it was because um, of the, the divide, um, there were some players that was that was happy about it, but then other players that were distraught because, like you say, he had his sort of 12, 13 players that he, he picked every week. Um, and they were all happy, but then the ones that weren't playing weren't happy. So obviously, when when he left, there was a divide in, in people that were happy or not. I was I was sad to see um, Martin go, Robbo go, and and Steve Walford because what I think what they did for for the club at the time. Obviously, I know it's hindsight, but um, everything that happened after it was it was no coincidence that that all happened after. Martin left and he had stability at the club and, and, and he got the, the the club to some to some good finishes in, in the league. The bulk of the argument about O'Neill comes of what happened after O'Neill and the the, the, the Villas post O'Neill. I want to go back to when he first come to begin with though. I've seen pictures of when he first uh, joined and he's getting mobbed outside the stadium. Yeah. That, that's an unusual thing it's to see these mad, days. isn't it? It's different, it's like different Nokia you phones and stuff. It's like, even that was only 2006, but it looks ages ago. The O'Leary era had turned bitter and flat. Um, there were proper splits in the dressing room under O'Leary. Um, and what had happened was that... He'd had pops at the fans, hadn't he, O'Leary? So this man, O'Neill, had kind of he'd, he'd done the business at, at Leicester. He'd kind of won everything that there was to win, you know, 
up in Scotland with, with Celtic. And he just had a bit of, he had a kind of sparkle and a bit of charisma about him. So I think I think Villa thought, yeah, here's somebody we can, can really get behind. Yeah. Um, and to be fair to him, you know, kind of he took over in 2006, I think, didn't he? In the summer of 2006. And he departed in the summer of 2010. It's quite a journey, you know. Yeah, you know, of the, course, yeah. Some, I know we're going to touch on this, but he signed some. He signed some great players. You know, he's a really he signed some rubbish ones as well. He did sign. <laughs> he did sign some rubbish ones. Um, but the villa that he inherited and the villa that he left was a much better yes. Aston Villa. Although the manner of his departure and the timing of his departure meant that it was a much better Aston Villa, but one that was kind of really rocking yeah. and shaking. When we look back in the past, we always associate Ron Atkinson's team as being this kind of free-flowing team that played with a swagger. I don't think that the O'Neill's team were quite as easy on the eye as that. I think they were a little bit more kind of fast and functional, really. Very, very a team set up to spring teams on the counter-attack. Yeah, they've yeah, got yeah. Pace. pace in Gabby, they've got pace and flair in Ashley Young, they've got brute strength in Emil Heskey and John Carew. Yeah. Um, you know, O'Neill loved kind of big, strong defenders, so that's why Martin Lowson got on so well under him, and then that's why he saw him Richard Dunn and, and James Collins. Yeah. Martin O'Neill loved me. You know, he uh, he, he loved the, the the way I was, uh, I was playing. He was just... Uh, I was just the kind of centre half that he he wanted in the team. The best thing he said to me, Martin O'Neill, was, "I understand that you cannot train as the others. I don't want you to train as the others. You can more or less do whatever you want Monday to Friday, but you have to be ready for Saturday and obviously play well." And that was just music in uh, in my ears because that allowed me to do my own training to to be ready to play match uh, on on the saturday and i knew that if i if i didn't if i didn't do anything monday to friday i would probably also not play well on the saturday so i had to to train well monday to friday but not actually train outside with the other ones because that would be too hard for my knee. I was many times, I had some days off uh, during the week where I did my, I did my exercises in the, in the gym. I relaxed uh, and that allowed me to be ready to play match again one week after uh, on the Saturday. And that, that was, that was my best uh, memory of, of him saying that. Not only was it good in terms of league positions, but you just felt you were going to be excited. Yeah, yeah. You just felt you were going to see goals. Um, and then the wheels fell off. <laughs> I know, I'm looking, I've done some notes of just where we finished in the, in the years that he was there. Um, I'll, I'll rattle these off before we kind of get into any any specifics. In that first year, we finished 11th with 50 points. Uh, in the second season, 6th with 60 points. Tottenham were 11th that year and Man City were 9th. Yeah. Just, for, just for context, we jumped right up above them yeah. into 6th. The following year, 6th again, 2 more points, 66, 11 points away from the top 4. Tottenham only in 8th, Man City down in 10th, still not kind of catching us up out of anywhere. Then in his final season, probably about our most successful Sixth again, but 64 points. Tottenham get fourth with 70. And Tottenham and Man City have jumped right up into fourth and fifth and eclipsed Villa in one season when it feels like that should have been Villa in those years. We should have made that gap. That's the disappointment. It's like the England nearly team, isn't it? The golden age. It was the Villa golden age, was really. If you made them a couple of signings, the Falcows, spinning to mind and stuff like that. Who knows where Villa could be now? They could be knocking on league Todd's or you don't know, do you? It's... Makes you think, really. So, 
yeah, immediately Villa Dream Team almost, and so close, but yet so far. That became a three-way battle for that that fourth place uh, over time with Tottenham and Man City, and obviously the landscape changed when um, when the kind of oil money arrived at, at Man City. That I think that's when when Randy Lerner thought, I'm not sure I can. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not sure I can match that. They got so close and yet so far. And I think the reason for that was that O'Neill loved having just this really small-knit squad. Yeah. He could keep those players happy. Those 14 players, or those, you know what I mean? Those 11 to 14 players. You know, he'd give them... He, they'd only have to train once a week sometimes. He'd give them so much time off. Uh, but because he did that, because he kind of treated them, looked after them, they thought, oh, I like this. This is, this is good. And they gave yeah. him everything, which is fine when you're challenging for the top four between August and March. When they're knackered and either... The we, players, we always fell apart, didn't we? The March, players that you've always. got are either not motivated to that level, not fit, not match fit because they've barely been involved, yeah. or they're just not quite of that, that standard. That's when it all it all kind of crumbled. It's a bit like having a, a substitute teacher at school, isn't it? And you know you don't you're not going to really have to play by the rules too much, and you'll, you'll enjoy your lessons and stuff. Yeah. But then when the exams come round and you're failing, you think, oh, I wish I just tried a bit harder. Get you, get you with the analogy. <laughs> Didn't even have to write it down. Rubbing off. I've got a, a list of the fixtures from the 09-10 season. I've got all these stats are from Wikipedia, but they are all correct. And it's got the each match day and where we were in the in the league at that point. And from match day 16 to match day 28. We were in the top four and we dropped down fifth a couple of weeks. Yeah. We were in the top four consistently. So that's up to the last 10 games of the season. And then we dropped down to sixth again. Lost the last two games, which were, I think, Man City and possibly Newcastle. Yeah. Man City are right there amongst you going for the same positions you're going for. You've been in that top four pretty much consistently for what, what Christmas to March, whatever yeah. it is. And then, again, you still don't make it. And I know you have the, the League Cup run during that time, the FA Cup semi as well. And it, on paper, that's still a great season. You do just look back with some, some kind of disappointment of what if. Kind of all unravel because they obviously went to um, went to the Cup final against United, the, the League Cup final, and lost that. Damn you, Phil Dowd. <laughs> um, and then went back to Wembley again and lost in the... Um, in the FA Cup semi-final to, to Chelsea. And you could just see them creaking and it, it was this kind of March time collapse always, again. Always March. And after that, you could see... i tell you what did it. They got got battered 7-1 at Chelsea. Yeah. Stamford Bridge. And by then, you could just see that the cracks were starting to appear with O'Neill and some of his players and O'Neill and the board... O'Neill in the press, to be honest, as well. What happened was... I don't know whether I'd be waiting for this. Oh, you're not going to tell me this is your fault but that, no, Well, I'll, I'll tell you my part in it. I'm, I'm sure it's only a small cameo rather than anything. But last 7-1, and I did a fairly kind of brutal, brutal match report because from promising to, so much, from challenging on three fronts, FA Cup, yeah. League Cup, and the race for the top four, it all... It all fallen to bits and we should have done better in the Europa League that year as well yeah we'll get so, on to that later so it all fallen to bits and I did this match report that was uh, it was kind of because there were seven goals I did it around the seven deadly sins but these each of these sins was a criticism of his management game was on Saturday I think or Saturday or Sunday the match report was in the paper on Monday and I got it was my day off on the Monday and I got all these missed calls from what was the training ground number and uh and I thought it was the press officer because we had a bit of a, a fractious relationship anyway. I'm not coming out of this too great. 
And um, so I blanked it. I thought, oh, God, it's my day off. I'll get to you eventually. And they kept ringing and kept ringing. And I picked up the phone and it was like this ranting Irish voice down the down the phone. And I still thought it was a press officer because the bloke, Brian Dugan, who, who Martin O'Neill appointed, got a strong, he's a the Northern Irishman as well. And he clocked after about... 10 or 15 seconds oh it's actually O'Neill what have I done what have I... and he's, he, he didn't take kindly to it basically um, what was he saying I just thought this That's is the worst personal you, attack you repeat it? I've read and all this kind of stuff and you think oh no is that piece still available anyway <laughs> I don't know don't oh, dig it back out I'd love to read it so O'Neill's upset about this it's kind of a brutal attack on his management but I think it was fair and honest and so I thought oh, what the next time I see him at the press conference at Bodymore, he's going to absolutely rip my head off. Yeah. But the agenda had moved on between that that Monday after the Chelsea seven one and the Thursday press conference for the next game. There'd been rumours in the Nationals that he was he was going to walk and he didn't get on with Lerner. And yeah. He was he was going to. So rather than him taking it out on me at the next press conference, he was having to kind of swat away this rumour that he was going to leave and he was going to walk out and all this but he didn't swat it away very convincingly yeah. so it kind of left more questions unanswered than anything um, and from then from that Chelsea game and that week and these rumours not being answered and he kind of answered them like you'll have to ask the chairman yeah, that yeah. kind of thing classic it, be quite, it became clear that all was not well um, and I remember going to Portugal on pre-season with Villa and in fairness to O'Neill considering we kind of we'd, we'd had words he was friendly and welcoming enough but still when you'd ask him questions about what's happening with James Milner don't know I have to ask the chairman you know you think, oh, since when would we have to ask the chairman or the chief executive anything Mark? Yeah. you've run this football club yourself yeah. for the last four years I think he was very much in charge of everything wasn't yeah. he pretty much so I mean, petulance is probably too strong a word for it, but the fact that he was, he'd got this kind of standoffishness, yeah. you, could, you could tell he was sulking. And he knows by that point, surely, yeah. of what's going to happen. Well, I think, I think it's... I th- my theory on this, and it might be wrong, but my theory on this is that O'Neill... I don't say he was using Aston Villa as a stepping stone in a kind of a nasty way, because... People do that with their careers anyway, and they want to progress. Yeah. But I think he thought that he needed to get Aston Villa into the top four if he ever wanted a crack at a Manchester United job or a Liverpool job or something of that scale. And I think at first, Randy kind of thought, oh, I'm the new man in town. I'll, I'll, I'll keep putting putting the money down, putting the money down. When Randy, when the kind of, there's a big world recession and Randy saw the, the shakes arriving at Manchester City and thought, I can't compete with this. O'Neill thought, how am I going to get to the Champions That That's the next career step for me. Yeah, yeah. How am I going to get, how am I going to get to the Champions League? Then you've got the thing about James Milner going to Manchester City and you've said, haven't you, until then, Villa and Manchester City were rivals yeah yeah why would you want to go to Manchester City well I know you'd want to go to Manchester City because they're spending silly money uh, and they are really going to crack on as we've seen um, but I think all those things together made him think well I'm going to struggle not only am I going to struggle to get this team and it was an ageing tired team in places yeah. if you think about probably talking about the likes of Dunn and Collins and probably Heskey was, was, was going to start creaking a little bit I'm going to struggle to get us even 
to sixth again for a yeah. fourth year, let alone take this next step. And then, so to me, knowing that, the thing to the, the right decent thing to have done would be to leave at the end of the 2009-2010 season. Yeah. Give Which, somebody... As it was rumoured anyway. Yeah. It could have easily just gone, yeah, I've, I've took Villa as yeah. far as I can, I'm leaving, best of luck to the next man. Yeah. And I think by doing that, you'd have probably kind of... All the anger and, and fury would have been directed towards Lerner and, and Paul Faulkner saying, yeah. this is the best thing we've had for Villa for years. Why haven't you looked after him better? But the fact that he waited and waited and waited, and whether that's because O'Neill, you know, he's the kind of bloke who'd start a sentence and then change his mind halfway through and not finish it. So whether it was because he... could on this podcast. He would actually, yeah. <laughs> but whether it's because he was, he was like that scatty kind of character or... My more cynical theory <laughs> that this. he wanted to, it was an act of sabotage. He comes to see you just on the eve of the season. Do you, do you know, or can you say to this day what it was that, that, that caused, caused him to, to say enough was enough? Well, yeah, you'll have to ask him that, Matt, when you get him on the, the podcast, don't you? Uh, but I mean, it was, it was I don't think he takes my calls, Paul. <laughs> I mean, you know, it built up. And, and as you say, you know, uh, when did he leave? I think it was the, the Monday or the Tuesday, you know, the season starting on the Saturday. So it's pretty unusual. And, and, and he felt that, you know, the, the challenge ahead, it wasn't for him. So it was, all I say is, and really, it was such a shame. Some years are going to be more successful on the pitch than others, but, you know, you're always there or thereabouts. And that was you know, what the, the, the hope was. But yeah, it wasn't to be. And as I say, I think, um, you know, really sad for, for all concerned. Can you recall the meeting when he came knocking on your door? I can, yeah. No, we were over at Bodymore Heath and Martin came in and uh, he had a, a letter in his pocket and he got it out, read it to me and left it with me and um, and off he went. So, um, yeah, no, definitely one that sticks in the mind. I think we were toying with the headline of going with gone in, gone in 60 seconds back then, but was it a little bit longer <laughs> than that? Uh, it may have been 65 or so, yeah. <laughs> I kind of keep reassessing in my mind whether that's been... Too harsh. Could, could, what do you mean by that? Well, the, what I mean about it is what, what we've touched on before when we've said that it was hard for him to even emulate or repeat what he's achieved, let alone to take that next step into the Champions League. I think he's looked at that. He's looked at Manchester City growing, you know, on such an upward steep, I was going to say trajectory, but I can't say it properly, trajectory. <laughs> Good work. <laughs> he's looked at that. Man City on a steep climb. Yeah. And he's looked at Randy Lerner tightening the purse strings. He's looked at some of his players kind of kind of agitating, not agitating to get away, that's a bit harsh, but some of his players potentially having their heads turned. Um, he's already seen Gareth Barry go to Man City previously. And I think he's thought, I can't do this. I can't do this. I need to leave here with my reputation, my managerial reputation intact. Which is very fair, but do that... In May yeah. 30th or whatever, yeah. not August 9th. I think if he'd have done that in May, not only would he have left with his managerial reputation intact, he'd have left with the best wishes of the, the Villa Villa fans and he'd have had his kind of, I don't know, his human reputation Yeah, I, Yeah, I think well. the, the, way, the way he leaves taints the whole experience, I think, because much as, yes, there's some great moments over these years and he's one of the most successful yeah. Villa managers in the last, what, 20 years probably? Yeah. You still look at it and go, yeah, but the way you left was horrible. See, this, is, this is this is where <laughs> this is where my kind of sabotage theory comes in because he's thinking if I can't do that, 
and I'm Martin O'Neill. <laughs> yeah. And for all his kind of whimsical kind of Irish storytelling, raconteur, lovely, lovely fella, he he's a scary bloke. A bit Hon- ruthless. Honestly, there's, there's an ego there. He didn't want anybody else to come and prove that they could do it and they could deal with those circumstances better than him. The last thing he wanted was for his successor to go and get Villa into the Champions League. I don't think he wanted any of his legacy at Villa to be eclipsed by another manager because I think he thought it would reflect badly yeah. on him. Now, to me, the way he left the club reflects, reflects badly on him because I do think I think he's, I think there's a, a lovely gentleman in there some, somewhere. I think he was a man in a hurry. I think when the pressure started to build to walk, probably in March every year, he started to kind of... I don't know, I'm only speaking from the press box or from the man sat in front of him, you know, kind of a couple of times a week in a press conference or if we do separate sit-down interviews. But he kind of seemed to... And that's more than the, the average fan. Yeah, but he seemed to be, become like really a real kind of spiky ball. I'm sure he, he wouldn't mind reminding you. He won the European Cup twice with, with, with Nottingham Forest. So he's a born winner. Yeah. And anything that was threatening to get in the way of that, whether it was Randy Lerner, because he wasn't, you know, he wasn't... Um, giving him the cash that he needed whether it was one of his fringe players because they weren't enough value to him or whether it was the press because they dared to write something nasty about them he could have tunnel vision and he could kind of put you in your place and you'd think oh crap (laughs) I've just been (laughs) O'Neill'd Martin O'Neill was uh, a great a great leader in the sense that um, that he he was a winner he didn't accept that we lost the game even though we were not uh, Manchester United or whatever, it was always a catastrophe when when we lost the game. So that was that was you could feel that, and you didn't want it. You didn't want it to 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 lose. Uh, you could lose, but you didn't want it to lose or to disappoint him. So you did everything that you possibly could because his he, he was after you and the whole team. We had meetings, you know, where we went through what happened there, whatever. He was angry, and it was not, it was not nice. You didn't want it. You didn't want it that. You know, so you wanted to do everything that you could not to be in that situation on on the Monday morning. Uh, and then uh, another good thing with Martin O'Neill was that even though we didn't do a lot of uh, tactical tra- training, he wasn't he wasn't a, a great um, trainer. In that way that we did a lot of things, like I did with Ancelotti, uh, with AC Milan. Uh, okay, if uh, the right back has the ball, you're going to play that up there and you're going to run like this and, uh, you know, whatever. You didn't, you didn't talk about that. You, you just went out and, and did some, did some training. Um, because Saturday was the most important thing for him. Uh, but he was, he was, um, he was a, he was a winner and he, al- he also had, uh, a, a good idea of how to play. Even though we didn't practice a lot, you know, he wanted wingers. He wanted a big uh, striker in the middle. He wanted, uh, you know, uh, a type of game where you press and you work hard and you play the ball up to Ashley Young or Agbanlaho or into John Carew or whatever. He had he had a, a, a way of playing, you know, a, a, an idea of what what kind of players he wanted to play in the team and what kind of players he wanted to bring in. And that was, that was, uh, that was good. The Moscow thing, we all know what happened at Moscow, that Villa thought they had a chance of, of advancing in the competition, you know, to get to... Yeah, we, we, should, we should have. Well, they, they should have, but over time, it's almost as if 
it was the semi-final of that competition when I think it was the last 32 yeah. or something so they'd still got some way to go but what happened was obviously he played a weakened team you know left all his stars at home and I can understand why because he relies on them so much getting in the Champions League would have been so much more for the club's future than yeah. winning the Europa League although it won yeah. the UEFA Cup or whatever it was then um but having done that, having played all the kids and lost the game at Moscow, you've then got to win your next game. Yes. You've got to win your next game, which it all seemed to be going well. They were tuning up against Stoke. And you're thinking, okay, Martin, we'll, we'll give you this one. Because yeah. I think if they'd have beaten Stoke that day, if my memory serves me correctly, they'd have opened up an eight-point lead. They'd have been fourth or even third with an eight-point lead over the team, potentially in fifth. And we also played Man City and Tottenham the two games after that and lost them both. Yeah. So, <laughs> I remember Glenn Whelan spanking in a, spanking in a last-minute equaliser for Stoke on that, that game. And it was O'Neill's birthday as well. And he came in. <laughs> Honestly. You're there singing happy is, birthday to you. It is. It's like a bloke who's kind of won the lottery and lost his ticket. He was just... <laughs> he was crestfallen. I think O'Neill didn't do himself any favours because he realised that the backlash of Villa fans who, you know, Europe doesn't, it certainly doesn't now, but didn't even then. But it, it, it's not, it's not a, a something that's routine, is it? It's something that, that comes along when it comes along. Yeah. Um, and because of the backlash, I think he'd underestimated it and he apologised. Well, he, he held a dinner as a, by way of to making it up with the fans who had travelled. And I wasn't, I wasn't there. Um, <laughs> you were blacklisted. <laughs> But what, apparently what he said was, um, you know, he kind of held this dinner to to, to apologise, but kind of did a speech saying, I don't need to apologise, oh, I'm wow. the boss. Oh, no. <laughs> so any goodwill that you kind of, you know, your free beef dinner and you... He couldn't quite bring himself <laughs> to even get the apology so out think, either. So some of the kind of hardcore travelling away fans thought, come on. Those couple of years were the first time I was the main Villa Club reporter. I was kind of second second in command up until then. So my first two years of European football, I got one trip to Rapid Vienna in the preliminary <laughs> round one year. And then I'm back in Vienna again. It's a lovely place. <laughs> but I didn't really get to see as much of the world as I was uh, anticipating yeah. to be What are the high, the high moments of the O'Neill era for you? Is there any standout, standout moments? Yeah, the... We beat Sheffield United on last game of the season. Uh, that was his one first year, year, wasn't it? Was it his first year. They brought out the kind of proud history, bright future scarves. Oh, yeah, there's one sitting in front of me. It's almost like we planned it. Um, so they pride of the European Cup winning squad that day, which yeah. was a big thing because they'd all kind of fallen out with Doug. Randy's back, you know, here's our, here's our heritage. So that was a nice feel-good factor. I think even Patrick Berger scored. Um <laughs> I think it was the big wins, you know, he took Villa to the Emirates and and, and won. Um, Gabby scored, I think they won 2-0. Um, took Villa to Old Trafford and it's the first time we'd won at Old Trafford in, in years, probably 30 years or more. That won there since, um, I No. Gabby scored, Gabby scored there as well. O'Leary left that summer and O'Neill come in and O'Neill was addicted to me. You know, it was like, wow, like, like you're quick, you're in. Basically, do you know what I mean? You want you was in uh, like love youth and pace. So a lot of players sort of left, and it was basically you built a team around like for the first season, Luke Moore on the left, me on the right, and Gal in the middle. Do you know what I mean? It was like four three three, and I, I didn't enjoy playing right wing, but I done okay there my first season. You know, be, being as a right winger because of the pace, 
And um, yeah, I just remember like being more comfortable with mine on the all coming around it because I had had like six months experience of being a first team um, player. The Big Blues five one, yeah, um, and you know one. you got Carew and Gabby and Ashley Young all on target. It was going to Villa Park with an expectation that you're going to win football matches, yeah, and that hadn't happened between probably between John Gregory leaving and. Martin O'Neill's second or third season, you actually thought, we're going to win today. Yeah, 100%. Uh, and I think probably, and O'Neill would, if he'd, if he'd ever sit down with me again, O'Neill would probably tell you this, that I think he was probably a victim of his own success because he'd kind of engendered that kind of feeling that we thought we were going to win every week. As we know now, look at Villa and three sixth place finishes in a row, European football, even if it's only in the in the very early <laughs> rounds. Round. Um there would be Ajax in yeah. in one season. Yeah. There, was some, there was some good good moments in Europe as well. Um, the Blackburn semi final as well. Six yeah. four was it? Seven, yeah, seven six four. Uh, I think I think there was a I think there was a seven seven game winning run away from home. They won seven games on the spin away from home, which was remarkable, really. And I think one of the, it might have been the game that clinched it. I think that that record. I think they won away at Blackburn, and that night on that Saturday night, I think. Like five five players called up for England from the Villa wow, squad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like Heskey, like Stephen Warnock, uh, Ashley Young, um, whether it was Barry or Downing, I, I can't remember Milner potentially. And you thought we're actually a top team now. We're actually can can compete and can can challenge. Um, so, and O'Neill did that. O'Neill made that happen. You know, let's not let's not pretend he wasn't bankroll bankrolled by massive money. Um, from Randy Learner's, Learner's family family fortune, but we've seen clubs squander big money before and still not be able to compete. Mm-hmm. I think the, the issue for O'Neill was, in, if we're talking recruitment, the, the the issue for him was he didn't quite know what he wanted from his support cast. So yeah. he'd sign Luke Young as a right back and play him as a left back, and put R- Nigel Rikoka at right back. Quite or played right Carlos back player, lot, yeah. right back. You got these kind of players who have looked really good elsewhere, and they're just kind of discarded, yeah. discarded fringe players for Villa. <clears throat> um, I think you, you mentioned didn't you about signing Heskey when they could have signed Falcao or any other <laughs> top top goal scoring striker. Uh, I think that was a big factor. The, the, one of the biggest frustrations for me of Aston Villa in the last 10 years, and there has been a lot, is the fact that Darren Bent arrived probably six months, yeah. six months too late. Because Darren Bent in that team, when you've got the supply lines from Ashley Young, and, and Stuart Downing, or you've got the kind of... Ben and Gabby up front would have been scary. You've got the kind of midfield nous of Milner, Gareth Barry, who can pull, pull the strings and got yeah. the energy to get up and support. And It's just, you know, it's a real sliding doors moment. I want to talk about a point I've seen raised on Twitter um, about him leaving. And I don't know whether I buy this, and I've spoken to, to Ash about it as well. Was the way O'Neill left five days before the season the beginning of the downfall that we saw for Villa? Can you blame one decision on a 10-year decline? He just wanted to spend, 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 which is what you have to do if you want to get to that level, I guess. But once the plug was pulled, he was having none of it. He basically said, I can't do this job no more if you're going to sell our best players. Um, 
I can't do it. I can't, I can't kick on. So, it's a tough one to say because obviously Jared Hula did such a decent job. He got, he got Villa's a ninth in the end, let's not forget. That was after coming quite late as well. So, as he's only first full year. So, who knows if Gerard Hulia stuck around. It's easy to point the finger saying the slide was down to Martin walking out. But, obviously, you've got to point the finger at Randy Lerner, haven't you? It's down to the money side of things, isn't it, I think? After Hulia spent on bent, I think, um, that was it then. No more no more coming from Mr Lerner. So, down to the owner for me. I think, I think he had enough by then. He realised Villa couldn't reach that level they did before. So, I think I'm going to point toward learner myself and saves save O'Neill there. I'm going to get back on the analogy train now. To me, it's a bit like, you know, kind of plate tectonics when the kind of planet splits apart into kind of, you know, <laughs> yeah. one island here. And, <laughs> it's like that. Stephen Island. At some, well, that, that, that's an interesting point, actually. But at, at some stage, there's got to be that first little crack yeah. that starts to break it. So things start to split and divide. Aston Villa have made tens, hundreds, thousands of bad decisions over the last 10 years that have absolutely nothing to do with Martin O'Neill. Yeah. But having said that, if he hadn't have left in the way that he did, then a lot of those decisions would have been avoided because Villa would have yeah. been on a more stable footing to plan. If you're looking at it kind of objectively... You would can understand why he would have been frustrated as well because he's looking at Man City and Tottenham thinking, well, they're spending money. Oh, I'm not getting the money now that I used to be getting. Then on the other hand, you look from own, from Lerner's point of view and think, well, I've given you money to spend over the years, yeah. and you've give Habib Habi Bay fifty grand a week or whatever, and you, you've had money and wasted it. So you can see both sides of the argument. I think if we'd have spent the money more wisely during those years and maybe we were a bit more forward thinking as having a kind of sporting director kind of yeah. role back then, maybe we'd have invested wisely. In. See, I don't think it would have fitted. I no, it, would, it wouldn't have worked. But I, I mean, don't think, I mean, I, I think one of the villas... Giving, biggest... him, giving him too much trust to let him do his own thing is ultimately yeah, well, led to our downfall. I think the, the reason for that was, I think Steve Stride was moved out of the way too soon. who got a kind of vast contacts book and new football inside out and, I think if Steve Stride would have been allowed, would have stayed in there and almost kind of mentored Paul Faulkner and taught him the ways yeah. and kind of almost had a successor, I think it would have been fine. But Steve Stride moves out of the way. Paul Faulkner is a little bit green still. Um, he's never run a football club before and... It's easier. It was almost a slightly unreal, natural upward curve wasn't there and and obviously 06 07 you know new owner new manager the team you know sort of figuring itself out i think that was that january when we were able to buy um ashley young and john carew came in and sean maloney and you know that was the first real opportunity i guess that 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 randy and martin had had to uh, do some serious business so i think Pet- uh, stan petroff had come in at the end of the um the previous window and and you know the, the year had its Ups and downs, but you know we finished with that that brilliant game. Um, you know where we with the the team from the European Cup winners came back, and Villa Park was packed. And um, was it? I think three one. I think Patrick Berger scored a brilliant goal. And you know, and at the end of that season, there was just such a buzz. And then of course that built, didn't it? And you know the next sort of three years, you know the team really kicked on. Some more exciting signings. Um, you know the European runs, obviously the, the the sort of cup runs, and getting to um, to Wembley in, in 2010, and it, it felt quite, almost quite ordered. Um, yet, 
you know, you, you wouldn't ever have, have known it. And you know, when you're winning in football, everything seems easy and straightforward. And um, there was definitely that sense of just, yeah, we can keep going, we can keep building, we can um, keep achieving. And I think that 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 just created that sense of of excitement at the time. You're right. It probably needed somebody in a a position to actually weigh up the pros and cons of all those deals. I mean, he built three. He, he, I think he built a back four twice yeah. within two years. Because I think he signed Nicky Shorey, Luke Young, Zach Knight, and Curtis Davis. Yeah. Then the following season, or sometime around then, he signed Stephen Warnock. Um, Luke Young. Quite Luke that. Young, James Collins, Richard Dunn. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of things like that. And if you think, well, do you need to rebuild your back four twice? If not, and you can get it right the first time, you probably have got that money to sign Darren Bent. Yeah. Um, so I think things like well, that. The, in, the, the, in the end, we did have the money to sign Darren Bent. Yeah. It's, <laughs> anyway. amazing, it's amazing, you know, amazing how you can find that down the back of the sofa when <laughs> yeah. releg- the spectre of relegation is hovering. When it works, this scenario of giving a manager he's the kind of free will to do what he wants and it works and you're sixth every year, you go, yeah, yeah this guy's good at what he yeah. does. Trust him and give him yeah. everything. When it all goes wrong and he starts wasting money and then five days before the season says, right, I'm going now, see you later. Everything falls apart. He was asking for a Champions League, league budget without delivering Champions League football. Yeah. So, again, analogy time. I've likened it to... My you know when you're at the seaside and you've got the arcade machines, you've got those penny falls, <laughs> yeah. all these 2P fall machines. It's like that. It's like a kid who's, you know, they've got a little plastic pot in, like a plastic margarine tub. <laughs> that's, what, that's what learner brings in. Plastic margarine tub full of 2Ps. And only I was like, putting the 2Ps in. It's going to drop in a minute. It's, it's that fiver that's, or that crap watch that's sellotaped to a block. Yeah. And it, or super glued. It ain't going nowhere. But go on, just another 2P, just another 2P. And it just doesn't drop. And you're thinking, well, eventually you've got to, you know, you want to save some money to have some fish and chips or <laughs> see your dad can have a pint on the night, don't you? So I think it, I think it was like that and it, it just didn't drop and it was it was dangling on the edge. Oh, no. eight points clear of Arsenal. It was just about to fall. I mean, you look at it and think it's a mystery that Villa didn't get into the Champions League at some point during that. Just sort of yeah. from the law of averages of yeah. always being around it. How come we couldn't just fall over the line one year? Yeah, it seemed easier to, like an open goal, it seemed easier yeah. to, to get there than, than to not. The thing I was going to, the thought that popped into my head was something somewhere with somebody <laughs> happened. I'm still trying to establish what was the tipping point, not for the two piece, the tipping point for O'Neill to go. Now, I think he'd kind of made his mind up in the previous May, but something has gone on and a better journalist than me would probably know <laughs> 10 years on, probably have found out. And I'm, I, I just wish, you know, I'm quite... Um, not just for talking literature with, with Martin O'Neill, but I'm quite a quite a reader. I like reading crime fiction and stuff like that. The book that I, I the book that I want to emerge is Martin O'Neill's memoirs. Oh, I'd love uh, to get him on a podcast. But it's not gonna happen with I don't think it will happen, mate. You might need Ash to host that one. Um, <laughs> but his memoirs, because what happened is he's actually done Villa for constructive dismissal. Yeah. So he's left and he's won the tribunal. That. Yeah. How did that happen? Are you thinking? You know, and we had Paul Fortner, didn't we, on the podcast a, a, a couple of months ago. Paul's super polished, so you're never yeah. going to... Well, you might need 10 points to even get anywhere close to that story. <laughs> uh, not that I'm saying you can be bought for beer, Mr. Fortner. Well, yeah, you'll have to ask him that, Matt, when you get him on the, the podcast, don't you? Uh, <laughs> he was very kind of measured 
and polite and politician-like, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, as you'd yeah, expect yeah. from him. But I think they must have been reeling from that because for O'Neill to kind of leave the club at such on such a shaky footing and then them to get them to get the yeah. blame for it when they'd given him absolutely everything there's that they great, could there's, there's to a, a great point. Netflix documentary in there somewhere, isn't there? The story of what happened to Martin O'Neill. I'd love to like I say, I'd love to love to, to to read that book. I'm not sure. Listen, I don't know whether these things come with no non-disclosure agreements or what. You, you should imagine it probably would have come out by now. Yeah. Ten maybe, years maybe on. There's a ten-year uh, limit from awaiting. Maybe. You know, maybe only it was after a big Christmas <laughs> Christmas bonus in the, in the Christmas book market. But uh, I suppose the obvious the obvious different point you could say was the Milner, the Milner sale. That they would have known before it actually happened he's going to go at some point in the next week or two. So he obviously played in his last game for West Ham, against West Ham. O'Neill finds out for definite on the Monday or whatever he's going. So he goes, right, that's it, I'm gone. But they would have known that he was going to be leaving before then, you would assume. Yeah. And I still think that O'Neill had feelings of, I've, I've done all I can here. I should probably leave. But if Milner stays, does, does O'Neill stay then as well? Or, or is it, could you really put it down so. just think, to that? I think the damage has, has already been done by then. The only way O'Neill stays is if his kind of tired and weary squad is given fresh fresh funds yeah. to, to bring the third back four in. <laughs> yeah. Um I, I think he I think he would have gone gone eventually anyway. Um five days. Five days before the end of the season. It's shameful, isn't it really? <sighs> it is. If there's a flashpoint that has happened on that night and it's forced the issue and it's just appeared out of the blue. Fair enough, but this is this is kind of dragged on and on and on and on and on. Yeah. And you could have left at any point. You could have left six days, <laughs> oh, yeah. or seven days. Yeah. Um, any any uh, any earlier than he actually did it would have been better for Villa. I saw a clip of him in our in our archive somewhere when he was Sunderland manager. I think it was the first time he'd come back to play us since then. And again, as much as you kind of hope after the fact that they come out and say something, he's always just very been kind of, oh, I enjoy my time there, big club, blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, give us something more, Martin. Give us the details. What happened? The fourth year was, uh, it turned a little bit sour, I must admit, and um, which is unfortunate. Ironically, it happened to be our most successful year as well, too. Um, finishing, I think it was about six points off Champions League, um, FA Cup semi-final and League Cup final. I have um, uh, very fond memories of uh, of the place, but I must just say I'm part of Aston Villa's past now, and uh, I hope to be part of Sunderland's future. Are you trying to cue up my Sunderland story? Uh, is there a Sunderland story? <laughs> Go on then, hit me. You came back for the first time with... I was queuing up that clip is what I was doing. Oh, right, sorry, I've, I've trampled it then. You <laughs> no, came, go for it. You came back with Sunderland, and I think, check this, so I think it was a nil-nil a nil-nil draw um, and Craig Gardner got sent off in the final minute I think and um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna name names here well I'll, I'll get to the get the, to them in a minute but anyway basically it was and there's a picture of Craig Gardner getting sent go, off in the perfect. Match great great knowledge basically um, O'Neill came in did his post-match press and uh, I thought I'm gonna ask him something here he didn't like me you know that's his prerogative I don't know what's up with him <laughs> but he didn't like me and I was probably intimidated <laughs> of him yeah. uh, to a point and um, so we come in did his press conference answered a few questions about the sending off and all this kind of thing and um, during one of his answers he mumbled the word sorry and I thought 
right, I'm going to seize upon this. And I said to him, uh, so I'd let everybody else have their questions out of the way, so I wasn't ruining the press conference for everybody. And I said, um, just yourself. Excuse me, Martin, I heard you say, said the word sorry during one of your, your earlier responses, but I couldn't quite make out what you were saying. I said, were you apologising for the timing of how you left, <laughs> the timing and the way that you left Aston Villa? And he kind of got off out of his seat and started pointing at me and saying, if you don't mind, I won't take a question from you. And I thought, <laughs> normally I, I, I kind of think of a wisecrack or something, like something smart-ass after the event, but I was quite quick then. And he said, if you don't mind, I won't take a question from you. I said, no, I don't mind. Can I just invite one of my colleagues to ask it on my behalf? <laughs> and he just got up and stormed out. And oh, the, wow. the press officer, she's on Sunderland until I die, actually, the one of the communications chiefs up there, she kind of looked over at me as if to say, what have you done? <laughs> And wow. but to add to that story, and I won't name who it was, there was a former player and a journalist from this patch who had been up in the hospitality lounge uh, that, that together, together. Yeah, so they'd, they'd had a few drinks and they came in and kind of caught the end of that. And they were like, um, they were just like, like you could sit, like, sit, <laughs> see their, their shoulders shaking. You're thinking, but we, I'd, I'd love to have a guess at who that is, but I'm not going to. No, you, don't, you might give don't, it away. But you know, we do do serious journalism as well. Yeah, so I love that story, by the way. But I want to kind of wrap up because I don't, I don't, I, did, I thought this would be a short episode, but I've kind of, I kind of forgot how much there is to talk about O'Neill's time there because we went through so much in a relatively short space of time. Yeah. Really, um, when you look back now, with ten years have passed, I've gone from a fifteen-year-old kid when he left to twenty-five or almost. How, how has your perception changed over him? You're much older than you were then. You're a much more experienced journalist. Would you have acted the same way with him then? Is there anything you'd have done differently? Do you assess his time at Villa now with a bit more kindness? I think with the greater distance that you have, you see that it was it was an achievement because because of what's followed. But my biggest my biggest concern or regret is that it didn't end well for either party, did it? Yeah, because. Villa, as we know, has been it's been a circus at times. There's been there's been kind of shoots of recovery, and it's been you know it's been up and down, but mostly down. And Villa Villa didn't come out of it very well at all. And like I say, that's not all O'Neill. There's been a lot of decisions independent of him that that have been made badly. But I don't think O'Neill's come out of it that well. Yeah, really. You know, he had a little dabble with Sunderland, but. You know, Sunderland fans will probably argue that they are, but Sunderland aren't, aren't on the scale with Aston Villa, in my rather biased, I agree. humble opinion. And what was he ever going to achieve at Sunderland anyway? You know, he's he's had, you know, he's, I suppose he can say, well, I've gone on to be an international manager with the Republic of Ireland. But again, I think he'd have probably thought he was future England manager material yeah. at some stage. Well, yeah, if, you're, if you were telling Martin O'Neill in probably 2008, after Villa, you'll go to Sunderland, Republic of Ireland, and then Nottingham Forest yeah. for a month or whatever it was. Yeah. He'd have gone, bloody hell, what went wrong? Yeah, he'd have probably you'd... have stayed. If you'd told him that on <laughs> yeah. August the 9th, 2010, he'd have said, okay. I'll put that, that yeah. back <laughs> Just in my rip that, rip that piece of paper up, <laughs> stick it in the bin with the Birmingham Mail match reported, <laughs> and let's get on. If you could wind the clock back, and he would have stayed for that season. Yeah. And he would have, Villa would have still kind of fallen away from the position that he got them to previously. How would that have felt? Would that have tainted his legacy? A little bit. Um, I wish I was clever enough to think of a good analogy, but I definitely can't. I almost feel like if you, because he had some good times and finished sixth and we'd had the cup final the season before and, and all those kind of things, if we'd have then struggled for that entire season and been 
around the bottom three but survived around 15th or whatever I'd maybe almost be looking at it thinking like, oh, poor, like poor Martin O'Neill like, remember when he used to be good and now he's he's struggling with it like, he, des- he deserves better than like that a clown with the makeup running yeah just like, he deserves better than to be 16th with it. Like, what happened to O'Neill maybe he'd, he'd been tainted in that way but that's that's a different level of tainting rather than going oh he's a bleep 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 for walking out yeah it kind of just seems a bit of a lack of respect, doesn't it? And a lack of yeah. consideration for for a big a big fan base. thing that I, I did want to say, and this is where, again, I'm a big fat hypocrite, is that I always say with people who um, haven't shouted at me, and <laughs> like Dwight York and David Platt, people like this, who have kind of were brilliant when they are at Villa, but... To some some members of the fan base, they've tainted their legacy yeah. by, you know, in David Platt's case, almost airbrushing Villa from from his from his CV, and in Dwight York's case, you know, kind of kissing the Blues badge and, and that kind of thing. I always my argument always is, you know, I would rather remember them for what they were and what yeah. they did than what happened after they left. I can't I can't quite get over that with O'Neill. I can't. That's different though, I think, because him, like those examples you've just given there, is what they've done after Villa and with other clubs, whereas the O'Neill decision still affected Villa. Yeah. If O'Neill had gone to just left normally, or left in the way he did, then went to Sunderland, like, oh, Sunderland, a massive club, kissing the badge of Sunderland, I wouldn't be bothered about that because he's a Sunderland thing then. The thing that that he did with Villa walking out affected Villa directly, yeah. whereas somebody going somewhere else, elsewhere and kissing a badge. Yeah. Just, it's annoying, but it doesn't affect Villa in any way. I hoped that time time would have been a great healer. Now I think it's just sadness, I think, is the overriding emotion now because... Oh, I don't know if it's sadness. It's sadness for me because if it had been, if it had been O'Neill left Villa and then went and won the Champions League <laughs> with Sunderland or with <laughs> Manchester United or whatever, you'd have thought, oh, are you absolute? But it's sadness because, you know, together... Albeit there was kind of three in that relationship, Martin O'Neill, Randy Lerner and Randy Lerner's checkbook. <laughs> Together, they were so good. They were hailed as the perfect manager-chairman combo for a while and look how they've built this kind of big city football club back up to be, become a superpower. Um, and it didn't need, it didn't need to break up mm. like that. So that's why I'm sad because nobody's benefited. Nobody at all has benefited from it. Yeah, they've made p- bad decisions after 2010 that still go on to affect what Villa, what happened to Villa yeah. during that time. Only uh, Lerner was there for another five years and made five years worth of bad decisions pretty yeah. much. That's what led Villa to be relegated, not only or walking yeah. out in 2010. It's just life, isn't it? We'll never know the extent of, of what those conversations were. There's, there's a handful of people in the entire world that know exactly what happened 10 years ago today yeah. and we've spoken to one of them and he didn't really tell us anything. Um, Great journalism. <laughs> yeah. um, so I'd just love to know the full details. I'd love to have see a, a chat between Randy Lerner and Martin O'Neill 10 years on and have it out and, and find out all the little details. It's never going to happen and we've, we'll live in hope of like you saying, our get, own narrative Let's get Netflix it, behind it. Can we, ah, need, we need their budget to, I'd pers- love to, to persuade um, to get Lerner and, and so, O'Neill to break their silence. Yeah, someone fly us over to the States and we'll, we'll do a podcast with, with Randy Lerner. Imagine that. Um, but yeah, it's just one of those isn't it? I'm pretty over it 10 years on, I think. I wanna, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see what people are watching think. I can obviously leave comments, can't I, and, and tweet or some whatever else. I'm, I want to hear what people think. Is Martin O'Neill, what you said, anti-O'Neill or pro-O'Neill, where are you 10 years on? I'd be quite interested to know. I think there's more anti-O'Neill would be my bit. 
Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I think, like you said, it's probably a generational thing. Um, people who have not seen Villa achieve much success, probably O'Neill, the O'Neill reign. People of your generation is probably as good as it got. But yeah, leave your leave your um, leave your feedback in the comments on YouTube and on several podcast yeah, platforms and providers on social media. Copy us in as ever. Thanks for your support, and until next time, up the villa. Thank you for listening to Claret and Blue, an Aston Villa podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please let us know. We love hearing your feedback. We'll be back soon with another episode. Until then, up the villa. Up the villa.